starting with verse 23, Romans chapter 11. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is, by nature, a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of your, their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said. I want to preach you this morning on this passage and uh, I'm going to tag it to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. I pray that you would help me as I preach it, that I preach your word, not merely my ideas, open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once said, some men become proud and insolent because they ride a fine horse, wear a feather in their hat, or are dressed in the finest of, of clothes. Who does not see the folly of this? It went on. If there be any glory in such things, the glory belongs to the horse, the bird, and the tailor. Let me modernize that for you. Some people brag about having the nicest shoes and a nice hat and the nicest Porsche. And what he's saying is, is, if there's any glory in what you've got, the glory belongs to Nike and New Era and Porsche. Meaning, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. Now, how much more as it relates to our understanding as Christians of the giver of all things? We sang this song this morning, Albert A. Goodson, an African-American musician, was born in the 1930s in Los Angeles, grew up in the 30s and 40s, and he was too poor to buy a piano as he 
began to learn how to play the keys, and so he learned how to play the piano on a block of wood. In 1956, he wrote this song that we sang this morning, We've Come This Far By Faith, Leaning on the Lord, Trusting in His Holy Word, and He has never failed us yet. And he was surprised at how quickly it took off and the popularity of his congregations picked that up and sang it. But it's such a simple, profound truth and it makes such a declarative statement that we are not here. We have not made it th thus far in our life, in our, uh, uh, in our spirituality, in our understanding of God, in our faithfulness before God, we are here not because of works, but because of grace through faith. And what he's saying is, is the, the grace that has brought us thus far is the grace that's going to keep us. The God who, by faith, has brought us to this day is the God who has a future laid out for us. Meaning, it reminds me of another song. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Saints, we have no room to brag. Unless we brag on the Lord. Romans chapter 9 through 11 is dealing with a fairly complex issue. And that is... As Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, are flooding into the church by grace, apart from the law, and as many of uh, the, the modern-day Jews of Paul's day, when I say modern-day, I mean his day, are rejecting Jesus Christ, and as they're falling away, as they are likened to branches broke from an olive tree, the question is, what about the Jews? What about Israel? Has God failed His promise? We've already discussed this, right? No, He hasn't failed His promise. I'm not going to go through all my previous sermons on this. But I want to get to this point that one of the main themes in Romans 9-11 through 11 has been the fact that the Israel of Paul's day has been prideful. They have been leaning into their self-righteousness, leaning into the law, leaning into their traditions. To us belong uh, salvation, they would say. And then the Messiah does belong to them. And that's the mind-wrecking thing. And so he's dealing with this question. What about our brother Jews? Now, we too must take note. Because what he says in the previous verses that we covered last week, verse 11 through 22, is that just as uh, branches, like Ethnic Jews, those, those who are the, the natural outgrowth of the seed of Abraham, right? Branches broken off because they rejected Jesus Christ. He says, watch out, Gentiles, for you too can commit the same sin. To, 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 take, to take God's mercy for granted, to take his grace for granted, to judge those who fall away, to or to uh, judge is not the right word, to become arrogant against those who fall away. 
to become boastful and brag on ourselves. He's saying, watch out. Now, here's the thing. We, we want to give God the glory. Amen? And maybe you're not a Christian and you're still trying to figure this out. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. We want you to take your time as you explore this, but we also want you to come to Jesus today. All right? Uh, but those of us that are Christians, we want to give God the glory. However, our problem is this. Our, this is our, our natural challenge that we have as people in the flesh. Instead of giving God the glory, we often take His grace for granted. We become prideful. We think of ourselves as counselors for God, judging Him for not doing what we think He should do. And if we are not humble, if we are not sober, we too can commit the same sin and fall away from Jesus. And so this warning is part of our perseverance in Christ. Now, the solution is found actually in the doxology of Romans chapter 11. Alright? The doxology, just, just for the sake of uh, uh, our, our framework here, is in verses 33 through 36. Now, I'm going to spend most of our time in verses 22 through 35. Because we have to understand why Paul gets to this doxology. And by the time we get to the doxology, I trust we will say, I get it. And I see the solution. And the solution is, and I'm going to just tell you, to God be the glory. Alright? To God, everybody say it together. To God be the glory. Alright, simple structure for my sermon today. i got two, two main points. Number one, Paul gives us a glimpse into God's redemptive plan. And this is where things get confusing. And you know why? It's because it's a glimpse into God's redemptive plan. And number two, the glimpse leads us to give God glory for His redemptive plan. Alright, you ready? Alright, anybody else? <laughs> Number one, a glimpse into God's redemptive plan. What do we see? First we see in this glimpse that God has a plan uh, or has the power to save Israel. In verses 23 through 24. Meaning if if it is impossible for humans to take a wild olive shoot and graft it into a mature olive tree. You remember last week, we talked about this, for those of you that were here last week? Uh, you know, the, the scholars debate this, and they say, well, you know, Paul doesn't know uh, his, his gardening. This is proof that Paul comes from an urban background, because Paul doesn't understand that you can't take a wild olive shoot and graft it into a mature olive tree. And the point I tried to make last week was that Paul is not trying to give us a lesson on gardening. He's trying to give us a lesson on greatness. And, he, and God is great, all right? And what he's saying is, is that God can take a wild olive tree and make it part of a mature fruit-bearing olive tree. And that's what he's done, and he's grafted Gentiles into the olive tree of true Israel. Now, what he goes on to say is this, is don't think... That God can't take those branches that were broken off. 
who have, which have dried out and are useless, good for nothing but thrown into the fire. Don't think that God doesn't have the power to take a dead branch and regraft it back into the tree. Verse 23. This is the point. God has the power. God has the power. That's the point. Meaning nobody is beyond the power of God to save. I'm going to say that again because everybody in the room is. Nobody is beyond the power of God to save. We, we, we can't be too smart for God. Nobody is too hardened that God can't save them. Nobody is too far away that God can't draw them close. There is no intellectual that is beyond God's humbling and ability to save. There is no prodigal that is beyond God's wooing. There is no rebel that is too bad for God to forgive. Nobody is beyond the power of God to save. You see, I hear people say things like this. Oh, I don't think they'll ever become a Christian. Don't say that. Because God saved you. You know what I'm saying? Like the fact that you're sitting here in this church, in this space, opening up this word. Look, we know we're not saved because of our natural progression of life. All of salvation is, according to these verses, contrary to nature. He goes against nature in order to save. I remember the first time I ever saw bumpers at a bowling alley. You know these things? So I'm bowling, and I'm not very good at it, all right? I'm struggling. And I see the kid next, next to me in the next, next alley. Uh, and they got bumpers. These are like little things that go into the gutters. All right. And so this kid lobs his ball down the bowling alley and it hits the gutters like 16 times, you know. And then he gets a strike. And he's looking at me like, you're pretty bad. Like, I'm beating you. And I'm like, look, the natural progression of your ball has you in the gutter every time. Alright? Church, the natural progression of your life has you in the gutter every time. But God doesn't save us because of our natural progression. He saves us because He intervenes with the natural progression through the power of the Holy Spirit. And He captures us and He woos us and He forgives us and He draws us in. And so nobody is beyond the power of God to save now, in the original context here, what he's saying is, is that God has not failed the Jews. And as the Jews have been have fallen away in chapter 9, he's going on to say, as he grieves that, he's going on to say, don't believe that God will not save or does not have the power to save Jews going on into the future. Now, this is based on a condition. Look at verse 23. He says, even they, if... See the if? If they do not continue in their unbelief. If they do not continue in their unbelief. If they do not continue in their unbelief. 
unbelief in what? Well, they, they stumbled, according to chapter 9, verse 32, over the stumbling stone. And that's a reference to Jesus Christ. You know, in the old world, when they would build buildings out of stone, they would take a precious stone. It was a perfect square stone, and that would become the cornerstone of the building. And then all of the building would be built off of that stone. So that stone was Im immensely important. That stone was the foundation for the whole structure. And what we're told in the scriptures is that Jesus is the precious stone. Jesus is the, 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 the stone on which we build our lives. Yet, if we reject Christ, the precious stone becomes a stumbling stone. And so in their unbelief, they stumbled over Jesus Christ. Well, what ought they have believed? Jesus Christ, as the precious stone, lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. I mean, we should all be precious stones, but we're not. And so Jesus Christ lived a life of complete righteousness before God. His brother James called him Jesus Christ, the righteous. I don't know what your brother's nickname was for you, but my brothers never called me Joel Kurz, the righteous. But Jesus' brother did. That's what he was known for. And when he died, he died the death that we deserve. He died in our place. He took the wrath of God. He took God's judgment on himself. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he gave us the promise and the hope that death is defeated, that sin is defeated, that our sins are buried in the ground, and we are called to believe on him. And all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so I addressed the non-Christians in the room earlier, and I want to address you again. I plead with you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Christ. Trust that his life and death is enough to save you of your sins. And you will be saved. Now, not all believe. And not all of the Jews in Paul's day believed. As a matter of fact, the majority of them did not. Why? Well, belief in Jesus Christ is based on three premises. One, it's based on the premise that we are unable to save ourselves. Two, it's based on the premise that we must be saved. And three, it's based on the premise that only Christ can save. And so the precious stone becomes, becomes a rock of offense. And as a result, then, the branches, this is the metaphor that he's using, the branches have been cut off. The literal bloodline of Abraham, the descendants from Sarah's womb, even though they have the bloodline in them. They've rejected their own Messiah. While that is true, don't miss it. God has the power to save. Even that. That's what Paul says. But not only does God have the power to save, as we continue to get this glimpse into redemptive plan, God's redemptive plan, we see that God has a plan to save Israel. Look at verse 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. 
what's the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Let's just stop right there. This is where it gets a little theologically dicey. It's hard to know if Paul's talking about a future uh, salvation of ethnic Israel. Or if Paul's saying that it's already happening, meaning uh, Jews and Gentiles together as spiritual Israel is already happening. Or uh, whether or not he is uh, uh, talking about some kind of imminent reality in his own day is not necessarily a future reality for us. Now, let me just kind of break down a couple views on this. Some believe that uh, here where he says all Israel will be saved, that he's talking about true Israel, meaning not literal Jews, but rather spiritual Israel made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And there's good reason to believe this. In Romans 9, he calls all of us true Israel, I believe. In Galatians 6.15, nobody can argue with the fact that Paul calls the church the Israel of God. Why can't you argue with that fact? It's because that's what he says. The church, the Israel of God. Um, uh, however, it's not convincing uh, to interpret this passage to mean sort of a metaphoric Israel or spiritual Israel. That's all, all Israel. Why? Well, look at verse 25. He's, he, he's here referring to ethnic Jews who have been hardened in his day so that Gentiles might come in. When we get to verse 26, he's not changing the definition of how he's using the word Israel. But he's still using the word, or he's still referring to ethnic Israel. In this way, all ethnic Israel will be saved. So I think we can make a case here for the fact that he's actually talking about Jews. Now, when does this happen? Well, some scholars would argue that it's happening now, a.k.a. 2,000 years ago in Paul's day. Meaning the remnant was this very short first century time period. And now what Paul's saying is, is for the next you know, 2,000 years up to where we're at today, that there will be a great ingathering of Jews uh, who are turning to Christ and, uh, and, 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 and uh, then in this way, you know, all Israel will be saved. Now, again, that's not very persuasive either. Why? It's because Paul here seems to be referring to a great ingathering. Uh, some kind of like movement where the vast majority of ethnic Israel is saved. And also, uh, the timing seems a little strange. There are three hints that he gives us into the timing of when this will happen. The first hint is in verse 26, and that is future language, all right? Verse 26, he says, Israel will be, ever say will be. Will be. That's future tense. Israel will be saved. Verse 26 continues, as in written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul clearly didn't believe this was going to be happening now, in his lifetime, but something in the future. The second hint is in, hint is in verse 25 as to the timing of this. It says, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So what he's saying is, is that 
when the nations are reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be a great revival among the Jews when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The third hint is then given to us going back to last week's passage in verse 15. And he says the, their acceptance of Jesus Christ will mean, verse 15, life from the dead. And that's language that is always used for the resurrection, the final resurrection of the dead on the day when Jesus returns. And so I think what Paul is saying is this, is at the end of history, when the nations have been reached by the gospel and the fullness of the Gentiles come in, there will be a massive revival among ethnic Israel and the vast majority of them will turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. And this isn't saying that I think that there must be a reconstitution of the nation of Israel or that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, the nation of Israel today is God's people, whereas we are not really God's people. I'm not saying that. We are God's people. We are true Israel. We are the elect of God. I'm simply saying this. What Paul is saying here is that at the end of history, just before Jesus returns, I believe there will be some kind of massive outbreak of the gospel among ethnic Jews. Now, there's a mystery to this, all right? I think that's what Paul's saying. Which leads us, though, to another question. Why? 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 Why, why would, you know, if, if Israel is a nation among all the nations of the earth, why would God do this? Why would he have a plan to save ethnic Jews? Well, let's continue. God has a purpose in saving Israel. So we're going to see this in verses 28 through 32. Look at verse 28. He says, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. What do you think he means by that? What I think he means by that is, for your sake they have rejected Christ, meaning the gospel has been pushed to the Gentiles because the preachers were kicked out of the synagogues. And so there, it's, it's created this worldwide global movement, and that's why we're saved. That's why we got the gospel. But, he goes on to say, verse 28, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So here Paul is looking back to the fathers. He's looking back to Abraham. He's looking back to Moses. He's looking back to David. And God is saying, I love those guys. I love the seed in the womb of Sarah. I love the seed in the womb of Rebecca. I love the seed in the womb of Rahab. I love the seed in the womb of Ruth. God has set his affection on this Old Testament bloodline of Israel. And he's simply saying the gifts that he's given them, the hope that he's given Abraham of, of, a, of, of, of sons, this calling is irrevocable, and I'm doing this because I love them. That's his reason. However, there's more. There's actually more and a greater reason. We've got to keep going here. So 
look at verse 30 and 31, we see here that he's doing this merely to display his own power and his mercy. Look at verse 30. He says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too, verse 31, they now have been, or uh, so too have now, uh, they, they've been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also might receive mercy. Okay. It's really hard to wrap our minds around this. Imagine that you had a child that was rebellious. I know that that's not anybody's situation. That's why I say imagine. You know, you got to work hard on this one for me, all right? Those of you that have kids. Uh, imagine that you had a child that was rebellious. And uh, he sneaks out at night. He takes your car. He gets into a fender bender. Yeah. So the next morning, you're sitting down with him. It's, it's all been exposed. You figured it out. You talked it through. And, and your boy is in tears and uh, is, is, is seeking you know, your forgiveness. And you say, okay, you know what? You're going to have to pay for the repairs. But here's the keys. Get to your work so you can pay for the repairs. You give him the car. What is that? Thank you, Tony. It's mercy. It's mercy. You just showed how great you are in showing your rebellious child mercy. All right. This is why it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this passage. It's because while I have the ability to show my child mercy, I am not Lord over their disobedience. I did not ordain their disobedience in order that I might show them mercy. You see what I'm saying? Look, look at the text here. Verse 32. What we see is, is that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Alright, here's the difference between you, you and I and God. We are affected by other people. Our, our, our plans change based on what other people do. Meaning, your child disobeys and rebels against you and you re-strategize so that you might parent your child well. But with God, we don't affect God. We don't, we don't change God. Um, our disobedience doesn't cause God to go, you know, back to his bedroom and re-strategize and figure out how to show us mercy and parent. But rather, God is Lord over all. Meaning, I'm going to say it again, like verse 32 is the mic drop, all right? So if you're not getting this, try to get it. Verse 32, it says, 
God has consigned all to disobedience. Meaning God has ordained, not just permitted or allowed. God has ordained every single one of us to become a disobedient wretch. So that he may have mercy on all. Wow. God has a plan and a purpose to save. And in his plan, he has designed it so that nobody is completely obedient to him, minus Jesus. Now, look, God can do whatever God wants to do. Amen? I mean, everybody agrees on that. Could God have designed it in such a way that uh, Tim Carey is just obedient enough to earn heaven? Yes. God could have done that. But Tim, he consigned you to a disobedience, brother. And not just Tim, but me and you and the Jews and the Gentiles. Meaning God has in his redemptive plan designed it in such a way that he gets all the glory. That he gets all the praise. That nobody can say, I'm responsible for my salvation. Because only Christ lived the life of obedience before God. And Christ is God incarnate in the flesh. Who did all the designing with the Father and with the Spirit. And so God gets every bit of our the glory for our salvation. Isaiah 42 verse 8 puts it like this. God declares, I am the Lord. That is my name. And he says, my glory I give to no other. Now for some, this very truth makes them angry with God. For some, they'll, they'll hear this and they'll walk out of here and they'll say, God is selfish. God is self-centered. The church, think about it. If God acted for another's purpose that was greater than his own, then that would mean that there is another who is greater than God. If, if, if God gave glory to another more than pointing glory to himself, then that would mean that there is some other being that, de that, that deserves glory more than God. Now, God is not selfish, and God is not self-centered. God is self-giving, and God is generous. Listen, only we can be selfish and self-centered. Why? It's because we are called to live for a higher purpose and a greater good. But God is the higher purpose and the greater good. And so, for God to act for His own purposes and to organize the redemptive plan of history to bring Him the most glory is God. Listen, God is in fact God. And I think we got to remind ourselves of that. I am not God. You are not God. God is God. And to God belongs all the glory. In simple terms, let me put it like this. And 
this is not commenting on anything else we've talked about today. But when professing Christians fall away, it has an effect on us. In my, I've been a Christian, I've been 42 years old, I've been a Christian for about 30, 36 years. Throughout my Christian life, and particularly throughout my adult Christian life, I have known, I've known many Christians, I, let me go like professing Christians. Because a true, blood-bought, regenerate Christian will never ultimately fall away. They can temporarily fall away, and it has the same effect on us that I'm about to talk about. But they will never ultimately fall away, because God keeps his own. But I've seen many who have at least professed Christianity for a season, who have fallen away. I remember years ago a situation where a pastor told me over lunch that he was, he was a good friend of mine, that he was contemplating having an affair and that he was planning to leave his wife, and that he wasn't even sure if he believed anything about Christianity. Um, I've known friends, you've known friends, we've shared friends, who have rejected, that they've at one time claimed to believe and love Jesus in the same way that we do, we've shared fellowship with them. And then at some point they get to the point where they they give themselves over to their sin. That's usually what happens. They're giving myself over to my flesh. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this crisis, but there's only two paths. And you can't keep walking down this path without at some point rejecting Jesus. Now, when that happens, what else happens? You've experienced it. What happens is this. By God's grace, you are humble. You are softened. You are sobered. You, you only know your own proclivities. Only you know how weak you actually are. Only you know how you are just hanging by a thread to the grace of God. And when, when you see something like this happen, what it does is it causes you to fall on your knees and say, God, keep me in your power. My heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Seal my heart for the courts above. Don't let me fall away. Don't let me go down that path. Now, here's, here's the point, all right? Sometimes, God will pardon one to soften another. Sometimes God will ordain tragedy to turn many to faith. Sometimes God will allow one to fall so that many will cling to his grace. You see how this is mind-wrecking? This, this, this also contains a warning for us. Don't be proud. Don't get arrogant. Don't believe that you're ever sort of beyond the basics of Christian discipleship. That you're beyond the need for, uh, for church fellowship and, and Bible study and listening to sermons and putting your phones away and sitting in accountability groups. 
Don't believe that you're like some spiritual Christian who's arrived that doesn't need what every other Christian needs. Church, let's be humble with ourselves. Let's be sober by these things. Here's, here's the thing. The question is not, will God use me? You see, I hear, I hear preachers say it sometimes. They'll say, are you going to let God use you? Well, what we see here is this. God will use you. The question is, how will God use you? Will you be a willing participant or an unwilling participant? Will, be, will you be used in the hardening of your faith as you pursue your sin so that another might be softened to God's grace? Or will you be used to proclaim the grace of God that He has shown you? The other side to this, though, listen. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy. You know that the Bible never says God is rich in judgment? Yes, he has judgment. There will be those under his judgment. But the Bible never says God is rich in wrath. The Bible says God is rich in mercy. Here's the other side to all of this. The same God who might harden one temporarily so that another comes to Christ, that same God has the power to rewarm that soul and draw him back for his purposes. And praise God for his grace, church. Because some of you have been on both sides of this, and you're here now because of his mercy, because of his grace, because God is rich in mercy. Okay, here's my second point and we're done. So we've got a glimpse of God's plan, His redemptive plan. The second point, and I think this is the main point of this passage, and it's really the main point of Romans 9 through 11. It's this. Give glory to God for His redemptive plan. Give glory to God for His redemptive plan. With all of this said, don't you see now why Paul ends Romans 11 with a doxology? When Paul gets to this point, he, he's, he's laying it all out there and he's consigned all to disobedience so that he might show mercy on all. He can't say anything else. And he just says, verse 33, Oh, the depths of his riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. Forever. Amen. Woo! Listen, a doxology is like a biblical mic drop. A doxology is like a praise break. A doxology is like a peek into the reality of who God is. Like we're climbing up 3,000 feet onto the precipice of God's mind. And you're looking over the cliff and it takes your breath away. That's what a doxology is. It's, I gotta catch my breath. Praise God. Give Him the glory. So Paul, Paul begins this 
doxology with this exclamation, oh, the depth of his, of, uh, oh, the depth of his knowledge. Oh, the depth of his wisdom and riches. How uncertain are his judgments. And then he goes on in verse 33, or verse 34 and 35, to ask three questions in his doxology. And would you do me a favor and answer these as I ask these questions? Number one, who has known the mind of God? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that needs to be repaid? Yeah, exactly. He's saying nobody has known the mind of God. Nobody has counseled God. Nobody is owed by God. You see, God searches our minds. We don't counsel his mind. God gives us instruction. We don't tell God what to do. God is the giver of all things. We don't give to God in such a way that he now owes us. And that's because, let's continue here, verse 26, because for from him and through him and to him are all things. I'm trying to translate this. God is the source. He is the means. And he is the goal of all things. Meaning all things are from God. All things are because of God. All things are for God. And so our response is this. To him be the glory. Forever. You see that word forever right there? In verse 36? That means eternal, maximum glory. The Bible doesn't just say, give God glory. The Bible says, give God glory forever. Give God all the glory. Give God all the praise, Ephesians 1. Forever and ever, Jude. Maximum glory. Look, we give glory to other things in life. It's something we do as human beings. You know, you... you, you find your glory your wife perhaps you you give glory uh, to your husband for doing something for you you uh, maybe those of you that are is the Super Bowl tonight is that happening it shows you how much I care these days uh, if anybody's having a wave I will be there all right just let me know uh, but uh, some will give glory to the you know to the team tonight you might give glory in various ways but we don't just give some of our glory to God you know, we don't just like, you know, God's one of the things that we give praise. That God is one of the things that we glow. No. Forever. All our praise. All our glory. All our power. All our strength belongs to Him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That means maximum glory. God has wired things. He has ordained things. He has, he has designed things in such a way that He is to receive maximum glory. And then he says, he ends it with this word, Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. You know what, Amen, it's a good word. Amen means yes. Yes. It means I agree with that. It means let that be. He's saying yes 
His riches and wisdom and knowledge is deeper than the greatest depths. Yes, his judgments are unsearchable. Yes, his ways are inscrutable. Yes, his mind is unfathomable. Yes, he needs no counsel. Yes, he owes no one anything. Yes, his, 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 way, his mind is unsearchable. And he goes on. Yes, from him are all things. And yes, through him are all things. And yes, to him are all things. And so therefore, church, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gates that all may come in. Listen to this. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And so praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice, church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father. Great things he has done. And give him the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the fact that you deserve maximum glory. And you have designed things in such a way that you get what is right and what is due your name. God, may we be people who glimpse into your mind. Who catch a glimpse into your plan. And who every time we look at it, it humbles us, it sobers us, and it takes our breath away. And all we can say is, glory. Glory to you. Glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.